0: Hey, good morning. Welcome to week four of our series, Healthy. We're exploring how we can be healthier in all kinds of vital areas in our life, whether it's physical, mental and emotional, spiritual. Uh, ultimately, we'll talk about being financially healthy, having healthy marriages. So it, it's gonna be a great series. I think it has been already as God is speaking into our lives how we can be healthier. In week one, when we tackled the idea of being healthy in a generic sense, we found that there was an underlying foundational principle, and it is this. The healthier we are, the more our world expands, and the less healthy we are, the more our world shrinks. And it's definitely true in the physical realm. The healthier we are, the more things we're able to do, more things we can do physically, and if we're not as healthy as we need to be, it begins to shrink our world in regard to what we can do. Definitely true in the financial sense. If you're healthy financially, you have all kinds of opportunities. If you're not healthy financially, your world is shrinking. And so... As we've learned in week one, that particular axiom can be applied to all areas of health. But right now, we're talking about the most important health of all, and that's spiritual health. And I'll tell you why that is. You and I want our worlds to expand spiritually. We want to be at the place where no matter what life throws at us, we're able to navigate it, or we're able to deal with it. And that comes from being spiritually healthy. Now, last week, we began the talk about being spiritually healthy. Originally, I was only going to preach one message on spiritual health, but when I got well when i got to the finish of what was last week's message i realized i was only halfway through and that's why we're we're doing two weeks on this subject so if you're not if you're here today and you weren't here last week and i want to encourage you to download uh, the sermon or check out our app or get on the internet and and watch the message because you'll need last week's message for today's to make sense on the other hand if you you were here last week. You may want to go back and rewatch it given the perspective that we're going to be able to acquire today. But we're talking about being spiritually healthy. Now, just some bullet points in case you weren't here last week. One of the most common expressions of our times is people will say, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. And I know what they mean by that. They mean that systematized religion is a turnoff, but they are open to there being more realities than just material or physical realities. Now, while that is a helpful starting point, that's not what it means to be spiritual. Um, we learn from Scripture that when God made us, he made us trinities. God is a trinity. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one. But you and I were also made to be trinities. We are body, the material part of us. We are soul. Um, well, technically that's mind, emotions, and will, but primarily it's the mind. And then there is spirit. Now, we saw last week that the Spirit is our apparatus for communication with God. In Romans chapter 8, the Bible speaks about a believer's life, and it says the Holy Spirit speaks to our spirit and confirms that we are God's children. There's a really powerful understanding there. In other words, the ability to hear from God, the ability to talk to God, the ability to worship God is something that happens through the part of us that is Spirit. For instance, a person could be here today who is not spiritually alive, and you and I just finished what we call worship. Actually, every aspect of the Christian life is worship, but most of the time, we refer to that in regard to singing and the prayer part of the service. Now, here's the deal. A person could be here who is not spiritually alive, and they could sing the song. They could participate physically in that song. They could also participate soulishly. Their mind could process the lyrics, and they could have a basic understanding of what the song was about. But they could not worship because they're not spiritually alive. They do not have that apparatus for communication with God. In fact, as we saw last week, the Bible says that spiritual things cannot be revealed to someone who is not spiritually alive. In fact, the Bible says they're foolishness to him because they have to be processed through a part of his existence that isn't alive. Now, how did we get to the place where we are born one-third dead? Physically alive, soulishly alive, psychologically alive, but not spiritually alive. Well, scripture tells us that beginning in the book of Genesis, because when God made Adam and Eve, He said, Look at all this that you can have, but there's one thing that you can't have. God had to set up a choice. If man doesn't have a free choice, then, well, if there's no free choice, there's no love. Some of you are in a controlled relationship, and you know, you understand better than anybody. You know I mean, forgive me for breaking in this, but one of the questions I get asked so many times is, if God knew we were going to do wrong, why did he make us in the first place? Well, understand, God wanted to love us, and he wanted us to love him, and there can be no love if there's no choice. And so God gave Adam and Eve a choice. He said, you can have everything, but there's just one thing that you can't have. And what happened? Adam chose it and did it. And what did God say to him? He said, the, the day the day you eat of that fruit, you're going to die. Well, he did not die physically, and he didn't die intellectually, but he died spiritually. That part of him, that apparatus for communication with God, was at that point dead. And we're all children of Adam, so guess what? We're born into the world psychologically alive, physically alive, but spiritually dead. This is why, for many of you, God is so real, and he's such a huge part of your life, and you talk to him every day, and you sense his presence in your life, and you try to talk to a friend who's not a believer, and they look at you like you've got six heads, like you're crazy. And it's not their fault. It's not that they're a bad person. It's just that part of them that should be spiritually receptive is turned off. So how then, and and I'm still in last week's message, so just thank you for the extra time. How then do we become spiritually alive? I mean, after all, a corpse can't resurrect himself. How do we become spiritually alive? Well, God invades our space with his love and his truth. And when God brings his truth into our world, it allows us to open the door of our existence To God. Jesus said this in Revelation 3, verse 20. He said, I'm standing at the door and knocking. If anybody opens the door, I will come in. And that's when spiritual life happens. And as we saw last week, that happens when we believe. Always remember this, guys. You have absolutely nothing to offer God except your belief and your confidence. The streets in heaven are made with gold. He's not looking on, he's not worrying up in heaven about how to get his hands on your stack. I mean, the the street pavement there is gold. So clearly, you don't have any money to offer God. You don't have anything to offer God except you. That's what God wants more than anything. He wants you. He wants your confidence. He wants your trust. And by the way, isn't that the most precious gift you have to give anyone? Is you, your trust, your confidence? And that is why over and over and over in the Bible, we see that the way to become spiritually alive is to believe, is to put your confidence. And at the moment you put your confidence in Jesus, then you become spiritually alive. Jesus called it the new birth. Why did he call it the new birth? Because it's life starting over again. Spiritually, we come to life. And, and hey, how many of us here today, and I know that some of you are still wrestling with this and you're not completely spiritually resolved and some of you are just beginning to explore, and I understand that we're not on the same circumstance, but I'm talking to those of you who have opened your life to Jesus and he's in your life. Isn't it true that there's stuff that you understand now that would have been crazy to you before you invited Christ into your life? In fact, some of us laughed at people who said the very things that we would say today because back then we weren't spiritually alive, but now now we get it. Well, that just brings us to last week's talk, and today it, it takes us right up to the edge of where we're starting because I think it's important for us to recognize there's an elephant in the phone booth. And hey... If there's one thing true about New Spring, we don't ignore elephants in phone booths. By the way, if you're under 40, a phone booth is a place where people use... (laughs) We're going to have to come up with some new expression, aren't we? But by that expression, it just means something that's uber obvious that gets pretended it doesn't exist. So in that sense, let's talk about the elephant in the phone booth. Because although all of us who are spiritually alive have God's presence in our lives... Oftentimes, there's a big gap between what we claim to believe and how we live our lives. Isn't that true? I mean, and you think about that. I mean, here's the deal. For for many of us here today, if someone said, what do you really believe about how do you live your life? What's right? What's wrong? What's good? What's bad? We would say the things that we believe. And if somebody hooked up a polygraph to us, we'd pass because we truly believe those are the things that are good and right and, and holy in God's sight. But the weird thing is we find ourselves living as though we really don't believe those things are true. For instance, I want to talk to Christian husbands for just a moment. How many of you Christian husbands here today, if I asked you, how would, tell me how you want to talk to your wife? Tell me, tell me how, you, how, how you want your communication to work. And you know what most Christian husbands would tell me? Hey, I want to be an encourager to my wife. I want to build her up. I want to make her feel loved. I want to, I want to be the representative in my house of how Jesus would treat my wife. Why? Because she's the most important person in my world. But that being the case, and that being true, how many of us, how many of we who are Christian husbands, would have to say, "I've said some of the most hateful things I've ever said to anybody, to the person I love the most." You see what I'm saying? There's often a gap. You know, Christians, we would say, I want my language, I want my language to honor God. And yet how many Christians are dropping F-bombs today when they get upset? There's this disconnect because we're spiritually alive, but we're not spiritually healthy. And our world just keeps shrinking, and our marriages and our relationships and friendships keep shrinking, and they're not what they could be. So let's talk about that elephant in the phone booth. Because here's the thing. For many of us who are in that kind of experience, we're all over the page. One moment we're thinking, wow, I'm God's child. And the next moment we're like, can a Christian do what I'm doing? Can a Christian say what I'm saying? This disconnect is confusing, isn't it? I mean, first of all, it's confusing to people who who don't know Jesus, it's confusing to people who aren't spiritually resolved, and and, and and there could be some several of us like that here at New Spring today. You're like, I'm not a Christian, I'm open, and I'm exploring. But I'll tell you, what kind of creeps me out is this thing where Christians say one thing and they live another way. You know, and be honest with you, if I were not a Christian, a lot of the stuff that people claim throws them, I it wouldn't wouldn't bother me. I mean, the idea of a supreme intelligence, that's that's a two-inch putt for me, even if I'm a non-theist. I don't know what that supreme intelligence is maybe, but I know it's got to exist. There's just too much sophistication and intricateness in in the world as we know it, in the universe. There's too much interconnectedness between systems. See, in order to be a non-theist, you have to bake in the idea of the natural order and start there as a beginning premise and then interpret everything through the natural order. But, of course, they never really fully engage in asking how the natural order got here. I understand that. I'm sympathetic. I'd be there too. So in all, in all of objectivity, it would not throw me the idea of a supreme intelligence. Even if I weren't a Christian, I'd have to say, well, I guess there is some, I don't know what it is, but there is a supreme intelligence. Nor would I be thrown by the idea of suffering in the world. I have non-theist friends who say, the reason I do not believe is you say that your God is all good and all powerful, but suffering exists. Ergo, God cannot exist. He's either all good, not all powerful, or all powerful and not all good. Eh, But that would be a bogus argument for me because as I open the pages of the Bible, God's so upfront about suffering. All of God's people suffered, ultimately Jesus Christ. So God's never tried to hide that. that. That wouldn't throw me. If I were not a Christian today, the thing that would give me pause is the people who claim that they're spiritually li- alive, their lives don't match up with what they say they believe. Do you know what Gandhi said? We're talking about the man who influenced in his generation and continues to this day to, to influence the lives of billions of people. Gandhi said, I would be a Christian if it weren't for the Christians. I don't know if Gandhi really meant that or if he was just kind of trying to poke Christians in the eye. I'm not sure, but I mean, his point's well taken. As one non-believer said, I love your Jesus, I just don't love your Christians. Well, that's that's the elephant in the phone booth, isn't it? Because those of us who claim we're spiritually alive, and yes, indeed, we are spiritually alive, there's this disconnect between what we say we believe and how we live our lives. Well, it isn't just confusing for non-believers, it's confusing for theologians. It's confusing for Christian leaders, pastors like myself, because we want to communicate God's truth, and there's no doubt about how you become a Christian. It is in Ephesians chapter two, verse eight. The Bible says, "It is by grace you have been saved." Well, what is grace there? The, the Greek word for grace, in, in English characters, is charas. Charis. We got a word charisma from that. It just means gift. It's the Greek word for gift. So the Bible says it's by a gift that you have been saved through faith. Remember, the only thing we can offer God is believing. And this not from yourselves is in other words, not something you and I do. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. So how do you become God's child? Well, you become God's child totally, solely through a gift. But here's what happens. Christian leaders and theologians will say, that is true. We're saved by God's grace, by gift, just by asking. And then on the other hand, though, Christians' lives don't seem to match up. And the next thing you know, Christian leaders like myself will begin to talk about, this is what a Christian does. And after a while, their message begins to sound like it's something that we do instead of something that Jesus does. How many of us grew up in church? And we hear a sermon about just believe and invite Jesus Christ into your life and you can be saved. And it's like, thank God I've done that. And then you hear a sermon on Christian living. It's like, uh uh-oh, I'm not sure I'm saved. And there's this bounce back and forth. One sermon we feel okay. The next sermon we're in all kinds of trouble. And it's because of this conflicted situation that theologians have because on one hand you have what the Christian life is supposed to be. On the other hand, there's no doubt about it that we are saved by grace. And I will tell you, we have a problem in theological circles in the United States today because a lot of leaders are making grace sound so much like something you do that at the end of the day, it still works. One of the silliest expressions ever spoken in the English language, and I hear it all the time, is cheap grace. Cheap grace is an oxymoron. It is insane to even use that expression. Grace is free. If you got cheap grace, you paid too much for it. There is no no such thing as cheap grace. There is no such thing as expensive grace, except in the context that it costs Jesus everything. Grace is grace. Grace is like a cup of pure water. You put a drop of poison in a cup of pure water, and you've got a cup of poison. You add church membership to grace, and it's poison. You add works to grace, and it's poison. You add sacraments to the grace of God and it's poison all those things are good in their places but still when it comes down to knowing God and having a relationship that's forever it is grace plus nothing minus nothing it has to be quite candidly as a Christian leader I know a lot of these guys who preach on this subject of cheap grace and I'm not picking on them I know their lives pretty well and they need grace as much as you and I do it's got to be grace. But see what I'm saying? There's this, there's this challenging thing, and I understand why you've got leaders bouncing all over the page because the Bible's clear that it is grace, and yet on the other hand, the Christian life is a challenge. And it isn't just puzzling to non-believers and to theologians, but it's puzzling to us too, isn't it? Because one day we feel like we're okay. The other day we realize how short we're coming up, and it's like, well, how do I know that God has accepted me and that I truly belong to him? And we're going we're to unpack that today. That's where we're going because, you see, I think in order for us to be spiritually healthy, we got to resolve this issue. And thankfully for us, we don't have to resolve it. God's Word does it for us. But let me just give you a... Sp- a spoiler alert, so that you'll understand ultimately what we're talking about. It is true that coming into a relationship with God is free. It, it, is, it is God's grace, and it's plus nothing, minus nothing. But being a Christian, living out the Christian life is a struggle. It, it, is, it is something that isn't going to be a, a, an easy thing. By the way, any kind of health, show me any kind of health, and it's always, remember from week one, it's always uphill, you're not going to accidentally be healthy, and you're going, to re- you're going to need constant messaging. So salvation is free, but the Christian life is a struggle, and we're going to talk about that today. We're in three chapters in the Bible. We won't have a, the time to go through all three of these chapters. We're going to kind of like look around in there. But I want to challenge you to learn these three chapters and go over them over and over in your life. I talked to a a pastor friend of mine who pastors a mammoth, awesome church in North Carolina. We were just texting back and forth for the message. And I said, I'm going to be in Romans 6, 7, and 8. And he texted back and said, that's the Christian life. And it is true. So Romans 6, Romans 7, Romans 8, we're going to jump right in the middle um, of this because the apostle Paul is going to talk to us about this struggle to close the gap between what we are and what we say we believe. Now, here we go. Um, before we get into reading what Paul said, I think it'd be interesting for us just to remind ourselves who Paul is. Um, he is an apostle. I think he is probably, not that I would know, but I would guess and say he's probably the greatest Christian since Jesus. He wrote 13 books of your New Testament. I think he wrote Hebrews. That would be 14. Um, took three and a half missionary journeys. Took the word of God all over the world. Uh, spent 13 years of his 39 years in prison for preaching the gospel and died a martyr's death. I would think that if anybody had this Christian thing down, Paul would have it down, right? So we're expecting him to say, I'm standing on the hill and I'm overcome. Look at me. It's not what we get. Look at verse 15. Paul said, I do not understand what I do. That'd be like, I don't get me. I don't, I don't understand me. I don't understand my life well, what do you mean, Paul? Do, do you mean that you, you, don't, you don't know why you like fried chicken? Does it mean you don't know why you like Chevys better than forge? I mean, what do you mean you don't understand yourself? Look at the next verse, verse 15. What I do, what I want to do, rather, I do not do, but what I hate, that I do. Wow, two quick questions. First of all, does that explain Kind of sum up your experience? It does mine. I'd have to say that's true. I mean, a lot of the stuff I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing. And a lot of the stuff I want to do, I don't, I don't do it. So the first question is, does that agree with your experience? The second question is, aren't you glad to hear Paul say that? I mean, how many of us just sort of let out a sigh of relief? Like if this great legend could say I don't understand myself because the stuff I want to do, I don't seem to do, and the stuff I don't want to do, that's what I seem to keep falling into. Like I said, this has really screwed up theologians through the years. There are some who say, oh, Paul was talking about his life before he's a Christian. No, 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 because he's talking about being spiritually alive and still struggling with this. No. Well, most theologians don't go there because they say, well, I got to come up with some answer, so he must be talking about his early life as a Christian. I've read Everything Paul's written in the Bible, and he's real careful about his time tenses. No, he's saying what's obvious. He's saying, after all this time in the Christian life, I don't understand myself. And the stuff I want to do, I don't do. And the stuff I don't want to do, I keep doing. Well, although we can sort of high-five Paul and say, yeah, I know what you mean, bro. I mean, I'm there too. It still doesn't explain, does it? Why? On the one hand, we can be spiritually alive, love God, worship, have a desire to please God, and yet still seem to fall short all the time. Thankfully, Paul's going to get into that. And this is going to require us to really apply everything we have body, soul, and spirit into understanding this because this can't be something that we sort of waft in and waft out of and pick up. It's going to be a challenge even if you give all your attention to it. And maybe you'll want to go home and reread this about five or six times because it's kind of challenging. Read it with me. Verse 16. If I do what I do not want to do, I agree that God's truth is good. Fair? I mean, Paul's like, okay, if I want to do the right thing, if it's my desire to do what God wants me to do, and I don't do it, at least you have to admit I'm agreeing with God because I wanted to do the right thing. I didn't want to do the wrong thing. So Paul is like, if I wind up doing what I don't want to do, at least I agree with God. Drum roll, because this is it right here. As it is, it's no longer I myself who do it, but sin living in me. I know that nothing, this is a really important statement, I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful, here we go, watch this word, nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do, no, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that is living in me. Now, Paul's not saying I'm not responsible for doing it wrong. He's just saying the person I consider my true identity is the person I am in Jesus Christ. But here is the whole point. Like I say, drum roll, because here we go. When you accepted Christ, those of you who invited Jesus Christ into your life, God's spirit came in to live in you, and your spirit came alive, and now you're open and sensitive to spiritual realities. The problem is we don't lose the nature or the force that we got from Adam. So now it's like two people that hate each other living in the same house. We got this internal head button going on from the new nature that it wants to please God and the old nature that we inherited from Adam that has this sort of spiritual gravity to pull us away from God. And so now we have this conflict going on in our lives. And that's all that Paul is saying. By the way, I don't know if I've ever really taught this as much as I need to. This is why you have to die. You know? Every once in a while we hear about death as though it's something that just came out of nowhere and I can't believe that this person is dying. Well, Obviously, there are people who die earlier than we would like to see them die. But at the end of the day, this is why we all have to die, because that old part of us has to drop off. And, and Bible scholars tell us the most profound verse in the Bible is John eleven twenty six, 26, where Jesus said, whoever lives and believes in me will never die. We say, well, Mark, what do you mean never die? I mean, I stood beside a 1,000 caskets. I mean, I preached a 1,000-plus funerals. It looked like people died. But what happens is the body is left behind, but the soul and spirit go on living, which is why people who have near-death experiences will talk about bright lights and long hallways. Why? Because the real you doesn't die. It is this body that has to be left behind because you and I cannot take this old nature to heaven with us. Aren't you glad to know that? And who would want to take that with you into heaven? Now let's read on because we're going to like learn a little more about this. So Paul said, I find this law at work. Now a better word for us today we're more we're more familiar with the word force. So Paul is saying I find this force at work inside of me. When I want to do good evil's right there with me for in my inner being and that's my spirit. I delight in God's law, but I see another force at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. And can you believe this great man would say this? What a wretched man I am. And I love this. Who will rescue me from the body of this death? This is kind of graphic because we got lunch coming up in a few minutes, but in the ancient world, one of the ways that And they had all kinds of horrible ways to torture. But one of the worst ways of torturing a live person was to tie a corpse to the person, head to head, shoulders to shoulders, so that every place a living person walked or went, they would have this corpse with them. And that's what Paul is saying. He said, I I feel like this living person in Jesus that is tied to this corpse. And he's asking, who will deliver me from this corpse that I've inherited? Well... Do we just give up? I mean, it is, is the Christian experience just to say, well, I'm in this scenario where I've got the new person that's alive in Jesus, but I got this dead person that I inherited. I mean, so do I just give up and say, well, I guess I'm just gonna have to keep using, I guess I'm gonna have to keep, I'm gonna have to keep, keep being angry, I'm gonna have to stay in this toxic relationship. Is it just how it is? And I'm glad that Paul answers this question because in chapter 6, verse 1, he said, what's our conclusion? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? And he says, of course not. And now we're going to get acquainted with a really peculiar expression, okay? So just take a deep breath on this one. He said, since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Now, Paul is saying that every Christian has died to sin, If I'm sitting where you're sitting out there today, I'm like, I don't know about that. You know? I mean, it seems like I'm a child of God, but boy, it seems like sin's kind of active in my life and and I kind of fall into it, so I don't know about this thing about being dead to sin. That's a good question. I think I shared with you the other day that on Sunday afternoons I I go home and watch sermons that I've either T-vote or I watch podcasts because I want somebody to preach to me. And I have a church that I love a lot in Missouri. We're not a denominational church. This is a denominational church. We're not part of that denomination. But the pastor is a great Bible teacher, marvelous, marvelous church, large church, probably twice the size of New Spring. So I I was amazed when I turned on the recording this week, and, and the pastor happened to be talking about this very verse. And he said to his congregation, we are dead to sin. Now, guys, I've been preaching since I was 16, been pastoring since I was 20. I can look at a pastor's eyes while he's talking and tell if he's not getting through to his congregation. I don't have to see the television camera pan the audience. I just know the look. I know what it's like when a guy's trying to explain something and the audience is not getting it. And I saw this look on his face. And so, you know what he did? He, like, repeated it three times after that. We're dead to sin. And I could tell the audience never did get it. And, and I, for this very reason. Because we're sitting out here saying, How can I be, how can I be dead to anger and yet it just keeps knock, knocking me off my feet? How can I be dead to lust when I have this problem? Or how can I be dead to uh, pride? You know, you just put anything you want to put in that blank. Because it doesn't feel like we're dead to sin. So after watching my friends struggle with this, I thought, Well, I'm going to try to do a better job. So I don't, I don't know if I'll get there or not, but let me try. Um, In understanding what it means to be dead to sin, it has to do with making a choice to go a different direction. And Here's the caveat that's so important. With the understanding that we don't have to do what sin tells us to do. If you're a non-believer, you don't have spiritual life. You don't have any choice. The Bible tells us that the flesh cannot please God. But if you are a Christian, it's not that sin isn't active in your life. It's just that you're not in bondage to it anymore. Let's read, and I'll show you what I mean by that. And, and here's the thing. Paul is going to explain what it means to be dead to sin. Watch the verbs. Why is that important? Because verbs tell us, in this case, what we're supposed to do. Here we go. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Here's another one. Therefore, another verb, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, in other words, I guess a Christian could let sin reign, as some do, but Paul said, don't do that. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Here's another verb do not offer the parts of your body to sin. That's your hands, eyes brain. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather, another verb, offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. I mean, this is is simple, but guys, you know the difference between offering your eyes to pornography and offering it to reading scripture. That's what the Bible's talking about. Four, Sin shall not be your master. In that one sense, that's what it means to be dead to sin. We don't have to do what sin tells us to do because you're not under the law, but you're under grace. So then what does it mean to be a Christ follower who is spiritually alive, not in bondage to sin, but practically speaking, we still live in a world where temptation can get us? This isn't a perfect illustration. That's what I can come up with. Mary Alice sent me to find groceries this week. And you know, Mary Alice is really brilliant. Um, And she knows what it's like to live with a husband who's ADD. So now she's gotten to a place of taking pictures of the items and then texting me all the pictures. So I go through the store looking at the pictures. And it's really helpful. So (laughs) she sent me to one of our fine warehouse stores in Wichita. And I love this store. I mean, I love going in there because it is this massive warehouse and possibilities are endless. <laughs> and I had my list and Mary Alice sent me in there to find some raw nuts to cook with. About seven months ago, we just decided we were going to eat very differently. And, and so we, we eat a lot of things. We, we, Mary Alice uses Nuts and fruits, oftentimes for protein and sweetener, and so, so, so she sent me into the store to buy these raw nuts. But and I went, I went to the area where they had bulk nuts and baking goods, and they didn't have this particular nut there. So I thought, well, I'm going to go over to the snack section because I knew where it was from my previous life. Because <laughs> they have nuts over there; they're not raw. But I walked up and down. I was looking for these raw nuts. And the next thing I know, I have walked out of the nuts part of the snack section. And I'm now in the candy part. (laughs) Now, I love chocolate. And there was a particular candy that was a special temptation to me. I'm sure they're all manifestations of it. I know them as turtles. I'm sure that's one of the brand names for it. But it's this big chocolate thing with caramel and pecans in it. And I love those. And I don't know that that was a particular brand. But when I walked into that candy part of the snack section in the warehouse, they had boxes and crates of that particular candy from the ground to as high as the heavens. (laughs) And speaking of heaven, the smell of that candy filled my nostrils. Hadn't had those aromas in a while. But now I can actually smell the chocolate. I can smell the caramel. I can smell the pecans. Now, at that moment, one of two things is going to happen. I'm going to say, you know what? I've got my credit card with me. I'm going to buy three boxes of these and go out to my car and eat them all right now. (laughs) or I can turn this shopping basket around and go to the other part of the store. Now, here's what I want you to understand. And by the way, just in case you're wondering, I turned my shopping cart around and went to the rest of the store. I'll receive that applause from Mary Alice. Um, Was I dead to the smell of that candy? No, the smell sells. I, I, I go to this store to buy f- fruit and, and vegetables almost every other day. And right across from this store is this massive donut shop. And you know what I've discovered? I've discovered that cauliflower does not smell like those donuts. <laughs> the smell sells. So does it have an influence? Oh, this is so good. I didn't even say this in the other three services. Just now I thought of it. Was it the... Was it that the influence was not there anymore? Yes, the influence was still there. I could still smell the candy. The influence was there, but the power that it used to have over me is not there anymore. That's in the physical realm. But once you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior and you've got supernatural power on the inside of you, does, is the influence of sin still there? Can the pornography still allure? Can lust still be there? Can the temptation to be angry, can it be there? The temptation to be proud, the temptation to be insecure? Are the influences still there? Yes, but the power's not there anymore and I don't have to do it. You know, I've been reading from the New Living Translation, the NIV, but I want to read the rest of this out of the message because it's just so good. It says, you know well enough from your own experience that there are some acts of so-called freedom that destroy freedom. In other words, I was free to get that candy, but it would have destroyed everything I'm doing. Offer yourselves to sin, for instance, and it's your last free act, but offer yourselves to the ways of God and the freedom never quits. All your lives... You've let sin tell you what to do, but thank God you started listening to a new master, but one whose command sets you free to live openly in his freedom. You can say, well, Mark, this is all well and good, but man, I, don't, I still feel like a failure as a Christian. Maybe this maybe Christian gig is just not going to work for me. And I know, I know how you feel. You know, you just, have you ever tried to live the Christian life? And you just think, I'm just never going to be enough. I pray and I ask God to forgive me and I say, oh God, I'll never do it again. And a day later, I'm back saying, God, I said, I'd never do it again, but I did it again. God, I said, I'd never say those kinds of words again to people I love, but Lord, I, just before I realized it, they came out of my mouth, and, and here I am again and, again, and again, and again, and again, and again, and again. And you say to yourself, well, maybe I'm just not a Christian, because I'm just here again, I'm here again, I'm here again. You know what's strange about that? I don't know that we're focusing on the right word, because we're feeling shame because I'm here again. Maybe the word that's important is the word here. I'm here, I'm here. Do you remember when Paul said, oh wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Well, I left off right there because that's where you go into chapter eight, which I think is the greatest chapter of the Bible because Paul answers his question by saying, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Jesus Christ. It, the, the Paul goes on to say, but, but what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, our flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, condemns sin in the flesh. And so what happens is when I fail in order to be spiritually healthy, I go back to the place and I say to Jesus, I'm not enough. I need you to meet me. And I'm never going to be enough if you don't meet me. But if, you come into work in my life, then I'm going to have the power and the health to face another day. It's not I'm here again. It's I'm here waiting on Jesus. I want you to hear this song.
1: Is all I want Is all you are Will you meet
0: Let's have a prayer as we close out the service and both worship centers joining, watching online, watching on television, join me in prayer right now. We live in such a dark age and such a challenging age for Christ followers. If we ever needed to be spiritually healthy, it's now. So let's pray for each other. Let's do that right now. Husbands, if you're next to your wife, reach out and take her hand right now. Pray for your marriage. Pray for your children, those of you who have children. If you're with someone that you love, just reach out and take that person's hand. And let's pray for each other. Oh, God, sin has so much influence in our times. But for those of us who know Jesus, help us to remember that it has no power over us because the same Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead has quickened us and brought us into life. And so, Father, I pray that you will help us to take our shopping baskets and turn away from the things, the allures of this world that would bring us into bondage. And, Father, may we think about all the choiceful things beautiful wonderful freedoms that you've given us and live in those father make us healthy may we have healthy marriages spiritually may parents be healthy as they lead their children the ways of god and oh god may we be so healthy that not only do we experience freedom but we touch others who are searching for that freedom and maybe shine a light that points to jesus and we'll give you the praise and glory and we ask you now to meet us once again because it's so true we're not enough unless you come and meet us once again. But when you're here, it's enough. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you. See you next weekend.